0: Welcome to the Naffy Break Podcast. I'm your host, Dominico Sullivan, and we bring this year to a close with a very special guest on today's podcast. Now, the guests that I've had on the Naffy Break over the past year have come from all angles, from all services, but also from a family perspective, from an individual personal journey, but also from an employer. I set out at the start of this year to talk to people who could give some insights and some inspiration for those that haven't yet gone through the transition or who have struggled since they left the service. And I deliberately stayed away from the famous and the celebrity faces. However, there are some people who are household names and who have come onto to the podcast and they've given some real insights. Uh, today's guest is one of those. But what I was delighted to get uh, today's guest onto the podcast he uses his celebrity status, or now celebrity status, uh, and in the, and his media work to really further the cause for both uh, disability athletes as well as veterans uh, who've served. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm sure you're going to take some inspiration. If, like me, there's a few moments where it will stop you in your tracks, I've no doubt. Uh, but thank you for listening to the Naffy Break podcast this year. Please follow. Please share to anyone with a forces connection, and I hope you enjoy this episode, the rest of your Christmas, and into New Year. John James Chalmers, JJ, presenter, public speaker, Invictus Games medalist, Royal Marine, veteran. Welcome to Naffy Break Podcast.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me, mate. You missed dancer. That's the other
0: that- thing. Ah, now come i'm, <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm sure we'll see yeah we're sure we'll come on to that uh, listen fantastic for you giving up some time to come and talk on an affy break podcast but let me let me kind of kind of set the picture if we could for the listeners talk about the early years and a couple of influences for you growing up in terms of where you came from and, and the decision to look at the military in particular and and specifically Royal marines
1: yeah yeah and, and you're right. It was specifically the Royal Marines that was that was. Um, I'm sure everybody has it with their particular, you know, regiments, units, whatever it is. Once you have an insight into the world and the ethos of a place, um, you just want to find out if you can be part of it. That, that's what it kind of was.
0: So what what was that? What was the what was the thing that triggered you to think it's it's Royal Marines?
1: Well, I mean, I, again, I. Generally speaking, I had a sense of service. I was raised with a sense of service, being part of a community, being part of something bigger than yourself. And you know, my, put it this way, my brother's a teacher, my sister's a nurse, uh, I also studied to be a teacher. You know, I knew that it would be, as I say, something that sat within sort of society and and, and wasn't necessarily about making you a millionaire, it was about co- contributing something. Um, but I'd been a Royal Marine cadet when I was at school, which was like an absolute happen chance. There's only 18 raw Marine cadets uh, in schools around the UK. Only one of them is in Scotland. And so I happened to be in that. And the thing that was, I mean, even in a school context, joining the Royal Marine cadets was fairly sort of tough. Like they did beast us a little bit. But actually, what that gave me was a, an insight to the core, and it allowed me to spend time with Raw Marines. Uh, I mean, the instructors that we had, the cadets, instructors were fantastic. But it was actually when you met like just normal Marines, lance corporals, corporals, blokes, sort of at the bottom of the pyramid. Um, this was the early 2000s. Most of them had been involved in operations in, you know, the, the, the initial operations on Telec One in Iraq and in and, and the early Afghanistan. And so, yes, they'd lived through some extraordinary things. Um, But the thing that really struck me is that when they face these challenges, when they face these highs and lows, they had done it with their best mates. And that was that club that I was like, right, if you can make it into this club, I already had a sense of this is going to look after you forever. And you're going to you're going to go off and do extraordinary things. But again, you're going to do it. You're just going to work with your best mates. Is there anything better than that?
0: Now, we had Lee Spencer on a few months back, and he talked about when he joined the Marines, he just wanted to be an average Marine. He, because he, he saw, you know, and you talked there about the role models that came into the school. And I know other people have said when service people have come into the school and talked about the service, it's been a real trigger for them to want to pursue that. But Lee says, you know, the standard he thought was so high, he just wanted to be average. And that would be way above. The majority of, of his peers and people was is that true? Is that is that was that just Lee, or is that generally a thing? You think when you first enter the court? No, he's pretty right. I mean, the one thing I will say is that there's no such thing as an average marine, of the course, <laughs> <laughs> but, or, or or a former marine, by the way. So we don't so we don't say ex marine. It's a former. Right. they like identify as a marine.
1: Yeah. Well, well once a marine always a royal marine. And again, that sure. sort of parts back to what I was saying. But Lee's right. I mean, when I looked at these guys that came in. And even if you just stack up what training involves, let alone what they have done on operations, I looked at them and thought, these guys are superheroes. So to, to have a piece of cloth on my head the same colour as them, that was, that was the number one goal, was just to get into the club. Um, and that is a brutal process, but my God, one of the most rewarding things at the end of it is actually that sense that these guys that beasted you and wore these green berets and just looked up to as gods you're suddenly welcomed into their club, and 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 you know. But one of the things it's funny to adjust to is the fact that you're not that special <laughs> when you make it to the end. Everybody's got one of these hats. um So, but but just to be in the club is enough. And the one thing I will say is, obviously, there's you know you, you can go on to do extraordinary things in your careers. You can go in so many different directions. Uh, and actually, what happens when you leave the forces? It's about identifying the thing that that you particularly love and you particularly thrive at. I was an assault engineer in the Corps, and that was the thing which, you know, I could, and I will say it, I was a pretty average Marine, but I was a very good assault engineer. Like, I was, you know, top of my course. It was the thing that I was sort of born to do in some ways.
0: Perfect. Now, uh, we had Gareth Timmons on a little while ago as well, and one of the things that he said was that first year out of training, he actually didn't really enjoy it. He said, because he almost felt like, well, I had all these role models who were doing, you know, instructors who then became just my peers. They were, they were saying, you call me mate now, not, not instructor and whatever. And he found that quite an adjustment in that, that first year. So you said there about being great at your specific role and you're now, you know, just an average Marine around everyone else. Do you kind of look back on those days and go, "Wow, well, I did some growing up really quickly or some quick adaptations once you'd qualified? What was what's your kind of take on that now?
1: Yeah, you you do grow up fast. I mean, training is one thing, and it does ready you and it prepares you and it and it you know. I mean, I was seventeen years old, and when I looked at my peers outside of the military, you know, oh, God, my life was far more organised. Like my admin was far more squared away. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I had ambition and, and and things that so many of my friends didn't. I suppose, um, but at the same time, yeah, that first that first couple of years when you're what we would call a sprog marine. I mean, you are surrounded by some really hard and hairy arse blokes, basically. And yeah, I mean, it's it's an eye-opener because, y- y- yes, I mean, obviously there's a rank structure. So, you you know, you do fall at the bottom of the pile. But one of the things the core does really well is it's sort of, you know, there's there's a real brotherhood in, in the structure. There is, there is that sense that, you know, the very best leaders I had were the leaders that basically, <laughs> they didn't get angry, they got disappointed. Like they expected they
0: treated you like grown-ups and they expected you to be a grown-up. And that it, it, that that's a challenge. Just to jump in there, is there a comparison here, do you think, when you go outside of the Marines and you look into business or into whatever field you're in, that development that you're talking about, is that more mentorship, you think, when you come through having somebody who's gonna mentor you through those early years, whatever your role or whatever your job is? you kind of need someone who's just prepared, or, you know, whether it's to put an arm around you or whether it's to kind of wield the stick one or the other. But is that the thing that helps you progress the most? Yeah, I think you're probably
1: right there. You know, if I really think back to my time in the early days of the core, you know, it's very easy for some people to just give you no time of day uh, and to just, you know, treat you like the outsider essentially because you're the new bloke. But it just takes one or two guys to put their arm around you a little bit, uh forgive you when you mess up that kind of thing uh, and just sort of you know what tell you that it's all right and they've been there sometimes uh you know we've all had bad days we've all made mistakes Uh, and then when you sort of transition that into the real world I mean it's very funny you know we'll get into what I do for a living but probably like the most of us I live with massive imposter, imposter syndrome which is getting less so as I sort of realize my competence rather than my confidence. i think i've always had confidence but now i have competence within my particular job but that comes from watching the very best at work and i've been really lucky to to watch you know exceptionally people in my industry that are so good at what they do uh, and just learn as much from them as i can ask questions of them ask stupid questions you know listen you know we'll get into it again but you know i i I'm, I'm in broadcast if you make a mistake on air you can look like a real idiot it's better to make those mistakes off air ask the dumb questions so that when the actual crunch time moment comes uh you know you, you're in front of it
0: absolutely now tell us a little bit about the the career within the royal marines i know you end up for two commando kind of what was you know highs highs lows etc but obviously that you know that at some point that comes to an end, but how would you kind of look back now on your military career in terms of the Royal Marines? How would you, how would you kind of summarize that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I had a really good career. It was, I was sitting on a very sort of normal trajectory. I was, you know, jumping through the hoops as they sort of appeared, you know, if if everything had gone to plan, I I would be exactly where, uh, what was that about 15 years I would have been in now. know i'd be exactly where i was meant to be so it was all going to plan i was really lucky i got to travel i got to do exceptional things i got to you know obviously made the best mates ever it lived up to the hype that i wanted it to be it's not all sunshine and roses it's not all jumping out of the back of helicopters but you know the the tough things were as tough as i expected them to be and i learned as much as i hoped from them and you know ultimately the best and worst thing i've ever done is go on operations you know because i loved being on operations i love serving in afghanistan it's an utter privilege in in, in, on operations that's unbelievable Uh, but yeah lo and behold i I, you know i fall into the small statistic of blokes that gets blown up essentially um and you know it it has life-changing consequences but you know if i could have it if i could do it all again i'd just do i would just do more
0: So I suppose if you look at that chapter, you know, JJ Chalmers, chapter one, or maybe that's chapter two, and you kind of get to the point I.D. instant, you get, as you say, one of the statistics of, of people who've got injured out in, in, in operations. What was that rehab journey like for you in terms of, you know, at that point, did you think Royal Marine career over? Did you kind of think, right, what am I going to do next? Or were you still hoping that this was somehow you were going to be able to continue and be fully functional operationally? What was the thought no.
1: So it became pretty clear, pretty quick operationally, my career was most certainly over. I mean, don't get me wrong, I woke up and saw that I had my legs, uh, or didn't even see that actually. I was told it because my neck, my my head was in a neck brace, so I was just staring at the ceiling. But they told me I had my legs. I couldn't really feel them, funnily enough, but I had them. Um and so my understanding of getting injured in Afghan was you lost a leg. And that's that's why you lost your career. Like it was, it was, I didn't understand complex trauma, which is what I had. I didn't know, you know, when you're you're doing first aid lessons and we do exceptional first aid, hence why I'm alive, but it's all kind of clean to some degree. It's like his leg will come off like this or his arm will be damaged (laughs) like that. In reality, you know, it is a mess and I was a mess. So yes, so I knew operationally it was over, but I sort of, one of the most difficult But I am so grateful for moments was when the Royal Marines essentially pulled the bandaid off and they came in and I was like, listen, you know, just get me fixed and get me back to a unit or work in the stores, put me in the careers office, whatever. And that was, that was fine. And that's like, that's just because I wanted to be back with the lads. I wanted to be back in the Corps. I wanted to put my rig on, but they pulled the bandaid off and they said, it's over. Because you're never going to do the thing that you joined the core to do. You're never going to go on operations. You're going to watch your mates deploy. You know, you're going to train alongside them, but never do, you know, actually do what you're training to do. So yeah, I mean, when they explained it like that, you realize, yeah, you're right. A massive part of what I joined this to do is over. But what they said to me was, but you know, you're 23 years old, you've got your whole life ahead of you. You know, you need to take, you need to recover, and then you need to transition and you need to settle into into civil world here, and we're going to help you do that. And that was the crucial thing, was, was that, you know, they really did pull the Band-Aid off and go, right, it's time for you to start thinking about what happens next.
0: Now, I know you had probably four or five years after the injury before you eventually left the Marine, so that, you know, that recovery, that rehab, and I worked at Headley Court where I saw, you know, lots of injuries and lots of traumas come through there. In terms of accepting that when the Marine said that to you, did you accept that quickly, or was that something that, took a long time to kind of get your head around and kind of say, yeah, okay, I'll kind of, you know, I'll, I'll agree with that if you like.
1: Yeah. I mean, relatively quickly, I'm not going to lie. There were, I mean, it took, and it's partly because you just don't understand the full severity of your injuries It's also because you're so dosed up on medication that you don't even know what the real world is. Um, You know, so it t- It takes a while and don't get me wrong to this day, you know, when I think about my career and what I miss about it, there, you know, I, I, and you know, we'll, we'll get into how I've managed to sort of augment my life in order to sort of make up for the things that I loved about the Corps. I'll always miss the idea of going on operations. I'll always miss, you know, it's sometimes my last thing I think about before I go to bed, it's the actual, like what an unbelievable job that used to be. Um, so yeah, I mean, it took it took a while, but, re- but generally speaking, I, I I well, you know, I thank them not long after for being brutal with me for being honest. And One of the things they did, in fairness, was that, the peer support, and you go back to that mentoring thing you said. So there was a guy called Baz Barrett, and um, he's a he was a sergeant. and He was my mate's troop sergeant on Herrick Nine, so uh, what four or five tours before the one I was on, and my mate. When he came back on RR, R, told me about how his troop sergeant had knelt on an anti-personnel mine and had been horrifically injured, and I remember thinking, "Well, you don't come back from that, you know, you don't have a life after that, surely." Uh, and then when I was in hospital and just released from hospital and got home uh, for like five days before going ahead to head the court uh, to begin my like proper rehab, the Marines brought Baz Barrett to my house, and I remember being like, "Baz Barrett, I know that name." that's Sergeant Barrett, that's my mate's, oh my God, what's this guy going to be like? And if I I, I say my house, I was living at my mum and dad's at the time because I didn't really have anywhere to live. I heard the doorbell go, and as I walked upstairs, my mum and dad's front door is glass. and when I looked out, I saw this bloke, yeah, scarred and bashed and prosthetic leg and all the other stuff, but he was stood there with a smile on his face and he walked in the door, and I remember thinking to myself, everything's going to be fine because if if he can get to that point, I'm sure I can get somewhere near that in, you know, and that had been two and a half years for him by that point. So uh, that peer mentoring, that sort of having someone to look to and someone to put an arm around you and answer your questions and actually not even ask your question, say things before you even have to ask them. What a difference that made
0: because he's been through it right he's walked that and i suppose when we look at the transition and we say you know how do you learn about the things that are going to happen to you go and talk to someone who's actually done it already and you you've got that guy who's just he's walked those steps in front of you and can now share that experience yeah i mean when you're describing obviously you know the support that you had from the royal marines and the family of the marines kind of i'm i'm going to also kind of ask you what was your own family going through because obviously that's that's going to be a shock and traumatic for them. And the impact on them probably isn't spoken about so much because they don't want to show you how they're feeling, you know, and stay strong for you. But what, how did it affect the family at the time?
1: Yeah, it, it's pretty horrific. And, and, I mean, generally speaking, and I know, this from, I know this from having witnessed it, this will do one of two things to a family. We'll either smash them apart or bring them together. Now, generally speaking, we had a, we had a tight family and it got tighter but as I say, there was guys in the hospital bed across from me or the room next door um, that, that it went the other way because, because of, you know, family circumstance and all sorts of things. It is it is difficult and traumatic for them. And listen, I was in a coma for a week. So they, they had a head start on all this adjustment, but all this trauma before I even did. You know, so they were actually having to adjust uh, and sort of make sense of this long before I did. Um, and, and also they didn't really know the core. Like they didn't know the system, like they were very much on the outside. So like they were having to learn the system as well as, you know, just the language, the, everything it was, it was really foreign to them. Uh, and, and I suppose one of the most difficult things in fairness was, uh, I mean, my dad was in bits and this is a guy who's a, like a fixer. He just gets in and deals with the situation. Just completely crumbled essentially. And um, the moment I woke up, he was he was back, back in, you know, uh, in a much better place. But he wasn't. He was in a bad place. I can tell you that himself. Um, but generally speaking, my my mom had my dad and vice versa. My brother had his missus and my sister had her husband. My wife, on the other hand, or my girlfriend at the time, my wife, that the only person she needed in that circumstance is, is the guy in the hospital bed making her feel this way. And, um, and I mean, I'll be completely honest with you to this day. There are things that my wife, you know, that the, the, the adjustment that she's had to make in her life ten years later. I mean, quite frankly, her life is more affected to this day in some regards because of the way that her career formed, because of the way that you know when we chose to start, I and mean, all sorts of things. It's it's probably more affected by by my service than than my life is at this point, and that's that's something that so often gets forgot about. Like military spouses are not an afterthought. They are absolutely the bedrock of what makes us able to do our job. And the, the choices that we make and the traumas that we endure, or the,
0: the service that we endure, they they endure just as much as we do. Yeah, I had a, a married couple, Tony and Helen Dunn, who kindly came on. He'd been in the service 37 years. They'd been married for 32 of them. She'd moved the house on her own, brought the kids up when he was out of area. And he said, look, I did all the service. He said, but she should have got the medals because you know and and not necessarily acknowledged so i think you know the thing for me with the transition is involving your spouse in that transition process for me seems to be critical because like you say otherwise that that trauma of transition for it uh, would talk about in those terms could drive you apart right? yeah. that's that's an interesting one for me so um just tell me a little bit now you've kind of obviously you've got to the point now when you've you've kind of exited the marines you've done the rehab you've gone on what was the new purpose going to be? Because you said at the start, you know, service is kind of in your DNA. It was going to be some kind of service. What did you look at going forward to think, that's what? That's my new purpose? Did, did you have an idea? Did it grab you or, or were you kind of searching for that?
1: Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm still making it up as I go along at this point. But, we all, um, we all are. I mean, I, <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I was very lucky um, because of the nature of my injuries in particular and the prolonged recovery that i had the fact i was going back for surgery every couple of months for five years essentially um so you know i say every couple of months i was having about two surgeries every year for five years so that meant that my physical recovery um was long but it meant that my my resettlement and my transition was therefore sort of quite long um so that that's that's one thing i'm massively grateful for and i think my circumstance gave me that rather than than just the way the system works so when i so yeah injured in 2011 with medically discharged in 2016 the sort of big moment comes in 2014 when i go to the invictus games as a competitor at the first games and whilst whilst the competitive part of it was great and the physical rehabilitation was you know massive and and it re-spurred sort of levels of ambition and uh, and you know skills that I found, and just you know a passion I found in myself that that had sort of been simmering, but wasn't sort of on fire to the way that you know a Royal Marine should be. I kind of had this sense that everything would be okay, but okay wasn't enough actually. So as part of those games, because I was heavily involved with the media side of things, I basically established that I didn't want to be a sports person. I wanted to talk about sport. But actually, it was far more than that. You know, with the with the real Paralympics coming around the corner in 2016, you know, I looked around the guys that were going to those games, and I looked around the guys that I'd been at the Invictus games with, and, and I realized that they were my inspiration. Those were the guys and girls who had sort of helped me rediscover myself, had had, had this profound impact on my life. And I had this, I bought into this sense that actually, they could have that impact on just about anybody in the world as long as their stories are told correctly and the world gets to see them. Um, and so my sort of purpose for getting into broadcast was I just want to try and shine a light on on, on on people who make the world a better place. And that sounds really, Chad, really corny. But if you look at the work I've done on the Invictus Games, the Paralympics, you know, even the Olympics, you know, and those are just the sporting things I've done. Even dumb things like, like The One Show, where it can be pretty trivial stuff. I am a genuine, I genuinely believe The One Show is a fantastic program because it gives people their five minutes, their little five minutes of telling the world there's something that's important to them and makes a difference in the world. So, you know, you should hear about it. And that can be people that run charities or put together sort of social organizations, or it can be films about the blue light services, you know, the, the police, the fire yeah, the ambulance service, you know, I've been really lucky to go to lots of different places and give people their little five minutes to tell their story because their story has an impact on the world. Um, and so that was my thing. You know, as I said, I studied to be a teacher at one point in my life. And, you know, I consider myself a teacher to this day. My, my classroom is just very different I have this amazing platform and I want to try and use it for good.
0: Now it's interesting when you said that, you know, you go back to the sergeant who stood at the glass door as you came down the stairs when you you know you were injured and that that person inspired you and you talk there about telling the stories of other people quite often it seems to me that, that there's not enough examples where people can see people like them so whether they you know disability whether it's learning whether it's race related whatever it is they need to see people like themselves in positions of success you know whatever that success is being relative so it seems to me that as you say what you're doing is holding up these examples to go this could be you you could do this as well I mean the Invictus Games just going back to that for a second and I know cycling was the event that you went into had you, I mean I'm a keen cyclist but had you cycled before had you? was that something that you'd always done or was it like well I've still got two working legs and actually I can get on a bike like that was that thought process
1: That that was more or less it actually like because I had I'd, I'd always been into sport, you know, I'd always been into getting outdoors, being there. I'd never been good at it, like you know, but I'd always given it a go. Listen, being in the core, you know, you know this. It, it, as long as you can run and you can carry heavy stuff, you'll be all right, basically. And I was a bit of a racing snake. So I was quite happy just doing cross country and being out in the big bad world. Now, because of my injuries, not just to my legs, but actually massively to my upper lip, my upper limbs, the instability that you get. So doing like a, an impact-type uh, uh, exercise, it, it you know one of my biggest disabilities is the pain. It's the pain I live with because of the joint injuries that I've got. So when I got on a recumbent trike, there I was. I was no longer in pain, but I was able to physically exert myself. I also felt safe doing it. You know, I ride this, this trike rather than an upright bike, uh, because like you say, I've got two legs. They work fine. But listen, if I fall off an upright bike and my elbow hits the ground, Get getting my arm chopped off. Is the honest? Yeah. You know the, the 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 black and white of it. Whereas on a trike, I feel pretty safe. I can get fast. I can get out to the countryside. It does all that amazing stuff that I, you know that, that that you get from exercise. But I was also half decent at it, and to the point where I could compete at it. And that was you know the idea of competition is it's kind of ingrained in us. Like I'm not someone that really likes to beat others. I actually more 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 than most I like to beat myself. I like to. Set personal goals and, and achieve them, and that's all I did with the Invictus Games. And that's what I said: it was, it's about discovering your ambition. Actually, that 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 want to do more than just survive. Basically, um, you know, set yourself a big target. That like being a Royal Marine, it's
0: just seems like it's out of reach, but you're going to get there because that's in yeah. our DNA. Uh- I can totally identify with you there. And I, I took up cycling about five years ago and it's kind of just escalated. But for me, exactly what you've just said, if you set yourself a goal, it's almost like a reason to get out on that bike every day. There's a reason to do something because you can you can see something that you're aiming at. So I think that's a really strong message for anyone, whether it's sport related or work related or career, it's like set a goal. Just go after something, whatever that is, because it gives you a bit of purpose and that to go after. Um, so listen there's there's obviously something that that struck my attention first of all which was actually the reason why I kind of reached out to you to come on the pod and and it was it made the press i know when you were flying out to the tokyo games there was just a i mean it almost must have been surreal for you but for me reading it i genuinely thought i thought someone was peeling onions behind me but just tell us about that flight out to tokyo would you because i don't want to i don't want to burst the bubble here i'd rather you tell it
1: yeah i mean i had a I had a very profound summer, in fairness, and this was probably the sort of crowning moment of it. So I was flying out to Tokyo for the Paralympics uh, to to work for Channel 4 as one of the presenters there. Now, when I say I had a profound summer, that came off the back of doing the Olympics for starters uh, and becoming, like you were saying earlier, about sort of diversity and and viewership and and people being able to see you, I became the first disabled presenter to work on, on the Olympics. Um, so I was very passionate about the idea of creating parity between these two sports in, and having the sense of it is one games. It is the Tokyo games and it is made up of the Olympics and the Paralympics. So having ticked one box and having got the Olympics out of the way, here's the Paralympics, something that I'm really passionate about. And also we hadn't got to Tokyo for the Olympics because of COVID. So I was getting on the plane. And I couldn't even believe I was getting on a plane. I couldn't believe this moment was happening. And I was fulfilling this sort of dream moment. So I was pretty amped up as it was. And um, the airport was really quiet because basically there was only 28 people on my flight. So that meant that when I got on the plane, they were checking every ticket like properly one by one. And this the, the air steward looked at my ticket and said, Mr. Chalmers, and kind of took like a step back. She didn't quite know what to say. And she was like, uh, uh, Can you come this way? And I was like, "All right, where is this going?" And I thought, "I hope it's going left into first class. That's where I hope it's going." I was like, "She must know me off strictly." Um, But so she she takes me to sort of the other side of the plane, and she goes, "Am I right in saying that you were injured in Afghanistan?" And at that point, again, I didn't know where it was going, and in Afghanistan was in the press at the time. This was when it was all going south. And so, again, that was a pretty profound and, you know, it was quite a difficult time for me. So, you know, again, I I just didn't know where it was going. And I didn't know how even Afghan sat with me. And then anyway, she goes, our pilot believes that he flew you back from Afghanistan when you were injured. And I just, I I mean, I really just kind of couldn't. I mean, it was, it was, that was a lot. And then she said, he'd like you to come this way, take a seat here. He's going to take the plane off. And then he's going to come through and have a have a word with you. And honestly, I I burst into tears straight away. Just that this, I mean, the, the the thought that he'd already put into it clearly by identifying this and the fact that you wanted me, you wanted to meet me. I mean, that was quite profound in itself. And then yeah, on top of it, the fact that it felt like I was about to meet my long-lost brother or something, you know, like I was sat in the plane waiting for the little curtains to open from the front. And this guy was going to sort of come through and this is your life moment. Um, but yeah, lo and behold, sort of, I managed to, uh, yeah, just, you know, I managed to sort of compose myself for the 10, 15 minutes it took for him to square his life away and get the plane in the air. And then, yeah, the curtain opened. And and this, what was so nice about it is this really ordinary bloke walked through. And this, right enough, it was the pilot who had flown me back from Afghanistan. And he knew it because he had, he checked the passenger manifest. He'd seen my name, recognized it, and decided to just quickly Google me. My date of injury came up. That meant that he could get out his old flight logs from the RAF, dug them out of a cupboard, checked down, and right enough, there it was. He was the pilot that flew this leg of the journey. Da, da, da. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he was able to come and show it to me. And just, like, it was, it was unreal to get to meet this person. But the, what was so nice about it, as I say, was actually, it was so ordinary. And, and the whole, it just made you realise that what we, what we kind of lived through 10 years ago, it reminded me how ordinary it all was. And that sounds ridiculous, but it was just so matter of fact what we did back then. Uh, it, I find it quite extraordinary now, but actually we were just two, two blokes doing our jobs. And that's pretty much his last words to me, because I, met, I made sure when I got off the plane because we'd had a lovely time, we chatted and all that sort of stuff and you know, spun dits about the good old days. But I actually said, I'm not going to walk off this plane without without saying thank you to him. Unless it was COVID, I couldn't even properly shake the bloke's hand. You know what I mean? It was mad. I just wanted to give him a hug. But I said to him, thank you. You know, you have no idea. You, you helped save my life. You have no idea what that means. I shouldn't be sat on this plane going off to achieve my dream like this if it wasn't for people like you. And as I said, his words to me
0: were, "We just had jobs to do, and that's what we did." Unbelievable, what guys, incredible story. When I first read it, I just I was trying to picture that moment and that kind of like Davina McCall is nowhere in this image. By the way, she's exactly. not doing. It but yeah, I know uh, what you mean. This is, this is this is two guys, and let's say two hairy-ass guys from the service who are now meeting, which you know you, you can't do the hug, and actually you want to. But as you know, so matter of fact, while well, we were just doing our job, but just an just an incredible story. So let's let's talk a little bit about the the media stuff, which obviously you're really heavily involved in. You know, it's kind of it's TV sports. I know, but I know also you've done Remembrance Day, which you know that must be. I mean, I I find Remembrance Day. Probably more as I get older, and I've been on the parade and everything. I find that quite emotional. I think a lot of people have said this year, in particular, with the Afghanistan situation, where it's it's felt a little bit more raw for a lot of people. What What were you feeling as a as a former Royal Marine covering that? Not so much as a media presenter, but how were you feeling about that whole day? And then having to do the professional bit, you know, to camera. What was your thoughts on that day?
1: Well, I mean, I, I. uh, first and foremost, I mean, as a broadcaster, I just, you know, I, it's my job now. It's what I do for a living. And I'm very lucky that I that it is my full-time job and I can sort of put food on the table. Today. Like, it, it's kind of ordinary to me now. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't forget for one second what an unbelievable privilege it is to get to do my job, you know, to get to travel to sporting events that people would give their, you know, would pay thousands of pounds to go to. And it's my job to stand and be part of it. You know, it's a massive privilege, but I do it just because, yes, you know, I, I want to have these profound effects and I want to, you know, try and do a little good in the world with it. But the other thing is I just want to be good at my job. So, like, I have a professionalism when I approach my job. I don't take it for granted. It is just telly. It's a bit silly fun most of the time. But there are certain things that I do are particularly profound and, And I want to do an exceptionally good job on. And none of them, you know, none of what I do stacks up in terms of importance next to remembrance or the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral. Um, Because, again, there's a certain level of professionalism that must come with that. But you're absolutely right. How do you calm yourself to be able to bring your lived experience? You know, the reason that I'm there is because I can bring something, something, you know, new and profound and, and an insight that others can't. But being able to sort of um, bring that out, but but not have it break you—it's it, it can be massively challenging. Um, you know, I remember doing it was the hundredth anniversary of the of, of World War One, um, so a few years back, and in Scotland they held a a service in the cathedral in Glasgow, it was Scotland's national remembrance. It was on BBC. And I was the sort of narrator for it, which was an unbelievable privilege to be asked to do it. And, you know, I I, I kind of kept the machine moving and presented my little parts and kept it going. Now, thankfully, I did my final sort of piece of reading, piece of presenting, and introduced this young woman whose father had been killed in Afghanistan. And once she spoke, I could not have possibly stood up and spoken after her. Thankfully, that was the case i didn't have to get up and do anything else but when you hear a story like that and you realize yeah i mean what we did wasn't ordinary actually like what we were asked to do and i don't i don't mean this about me but i mean this more about those that we lost those that you know suffered trauma and and you know have had the life-changing effects of conflict you know yes it was our job yes we loved what we did Uh, yes it was a privilege But it was a massive sacrifice and so when you're dealing with those situations you certainly realize that you know one you've got to get it right but two there is a responsibility to sort of tell this story correctly because the thing about remembrance is it isn't owned by the veteran community it's profound and it's important to us but remembrance is for everybody you and i didn't serve for one another we served for the benefit of society So therefore, it's our job in order to, you know, we might be the thing that is built around, but it's to give wider society an understanding of the sacrifice that's involved in service and therefore have an understanding of why an empathy rather than the sympathy of why it's important to
0: remember people. Yeah, I think that's a really strong message. And I've spoken to people within families before, and particularly my partner's family, to say you need to pass on the story of service and who served in the, in the family down to the next generations. They need to understand what's what's gone before. So it does get owned by the public, as you say, rather than just by the people that serve. So I think that's a really, really, really important point there. Um JJ, in terms of the, you know, we can pick out the media stuff, but I'm going to talk with. Well, let's mention strictly. And I've seen, you know, and obviously mentioned that at the start there. And we can't. There was a, I mean, where we are now in terms of when this pod goes out, we're going out on Boxing Day. But quite recently, back in November, there was a a dancer on the show. Um, her name escapes me for a moment. Who who's deaf? And rose. they had a beautiful yeah. be- rose, a beautiful moment within the dance where they turned the music off. And there was a lot of stuff in the media after and a lot of commentary on social media about how inspiring that would be for people in the deaf community to see that and to kind of see someone again, as I said, you know, up in those positions like them, people like them. So your decision to go on strictly, I mean, I'm sure, you know, media face, they kind of grabbed you and gone, hey, this guy would be great. But once you got there, was, was it similar for you? Was it about, again highlighting what could be achieved and, and putting yourself up there for people to kind of look at and go, what well, if he can do it, Yeah, what was your Well, yours? I have I
1: strictly taught me a lot about myself and a lot about the industry that I work in as well, actually, funnily enough. Um, listen, I, I did strictly <laughs> – because as, as nuts as it is that Lance Corporal Chalmers would end up on Strictly, that makes no sense whatsoever. They're, in my new career, in my new profession – it's uh, the point I'm at. It became like the natural progression. It's sort of like, oh, and you know, you're on telly <laughs> now, and you, you, you know, you do your day job, but now you get this opportunity, and so the opportunity presents itself to, to to have this unbelievable experience. First of all, I mean, it's 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 totally wild. But listen, if somebody came to you and said, "Do you want to learn to play the guitar or drive in a Formula One car or whatever it might be?" and we're going to give you a professional you know, partner who will mentor you, who will you know, teach you, hold your hand through it, and and all the other trimmings around it. You don't want for anything on that show. It's for the best band, the best costume, the best everything. I never thought about dancing before, but the idea of getting this opportunity, why wouldn't you take that? Now, the only reason you wouldn't take that is because you've got like four or five days to learn a dance and 13 million people watch it. So <laughs> that's that's the only drawback. Otherwise, of course you're going to do it. But the other thing is that sort of, what can you bring to the show? And so, you know, you you, you represent your communities when you're on a program like that. So I represented the veteran community. I represented the disabled community because I do that every day that I'm on television. And that's like we said earlier, it is and isn't important. Basically, there is a time where it should be mentioned and shouldn't be mentioned. Sometimes, you know, when it comes to disability, I am a TV presenter with a disability. I'm not a disabled TV presenter. And the nuance in that is, you know, I should be able to just turn up at work and be like everybody else and just, you know, have my enthusiasm for sport, speak for itself, whatever it might be. But there are moments when my insight and my lived experiences of disability, of service like you've spoken about are really important. And I can bring that to the table, you know. But at the same time, it's also really important, like you said, that someone can turn on the TV and see themselves and with disability when we look at the when we look at the percentages in this you know in the world and in this country it sits around about 15% of the population is disabled or would be disabled by what the equalities act is, says essentially um, and there is not 15% of people on tv who are disabled that is just we are way beyond, you know way 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 back from where we need to be but we're making fantastic inroads and people like Rose on Strictly, maybe myself and some of the Paralympians that came before me that have been on the show, like that is the biggest platform for disability in the country. People think it's the Paralympics, but listen, 2 million people at peak watch the Paralympics and it's fantastic. 13 million people watch Strictly. Being on the biggest program on television is not just the right thing to do, e.g. we should be represented on it, but it's also the smart thing to do because Strictly, made by the BBC, the BBC is a public service broadcaster. It has a responsibility to empower people, to tell stories, to make society a better place. Yes, it's just a bit of fun on a Saturday night, and it's an entertainment show, but actually you can make an entertainment show and have, you know, have profound moments like Rose had, um, and perhaps like I did at certain points, where you're able to express a little bit about who you are uh, and, and where you come from, and actually, you know, when I came into the show, I think I just wanted to turn up and dance like everybody else and have it sort of not mentioned. Um, I think I realised over time that it needed to be mentioned because people need to understand what I, you know, the, the adjustments and, and the hardships that that myself and other people with disabilities live with every single day. Because again, just remember that it's just a job. The BBC is just an employer, like it has a responsibility to look after its workforce and make reasonable adjustments for disability, et cetera. So I think, you know, if I had my time again, I would have probably owned it a little bit more, but nonetheless, I was absolutely moved by the masses of messages I got from, you know, people with disabilities, and um, particularly parents with young children that had disabilities and could sort of see themselves in me. Uh, and then also from the veteran community, you know, it was a silly thing, and the vet, you know, and I got absolutely torn to pieces, quite rightly, from my mates so, from the vet, veteran community.
0: Let me jump in there for a second, because in my head now I'm seeing all the ex uh, royals out there going, "Has he got fake tan on or not?" And get absolutely slaughtered for it. So I can imagine, like you say, there was a bit of banter flying around from the from the rest of the core. I bet he took some for that.
1: Oh, loads. And yes, I was absolutely wearing fake tan. Uh, because, listen, you've got to immerse yourself in that culture. But like I say, you know, uh, the veteran community ripped me, and so they should. But actually, they were unbelievably supportive. Well, not unbelievably. You and I know, of course they're going to be supportive. You're one of their own. You're representing them. And as long as you're doing a good job of representing them and you're being honest, you're being true to yourself, you're being true to them, which I like to think that I was being then of course they're going to support you, um, and and there are lots of misconceptions and stuff that we as a veteran community need to need to deal with. There's lots of issues. You know, it's, there are there are bad, there are good, and yeah, that needs to be spoken about. And and to have a big platform like that, you need to use it with responsibility.
0: So JJ, you look back at the, the young kid that went into the Royal Marine cadets, and I was surprised actually when you said, you know, eighteen around the country and one of which in Scotland. So it's that kind of 0.1%, I suspect again, you know, that ratio of don't, you know, don't bother applying unless you're the 0.1%. But if you look back to that kid that went in it and you look at where you are now, couldn't have imagined that's where the journey would take you. But in terms of what you gained through service and through the Royal Marines, what is it you think that? That you carry forward now, that kind of put on a daily basis, you're almost relying on the same skill set or the same mindset that was developed through service. Is there something that you think, yeah, I, I'm always on time for interviews because that's been drilled into me? Is there something that stands out, the most valuable skill you've kind of brought forward?
1: It's a tricky one. And this is a bit of a cop but it's everything. It's everything because it's so ingrained in every facet of your life. It, it's the way that you yourself it is the way that you as you say turn up on time it's the way that you um that you motivate yourself it's the fact that you will always get out of bed you'll always come back you'll never be defeated like these things you don't switch it off as far as I'm concerned you can lose it you can lose it and uh, um, because you can have a shifted mindset you can have it um you know you can be you can endure a trauma like I did you can lose parts of it but it never really goes away because I wouldn't be the person I am today if I hadn't made that decision as a 17-year-old. It is that the, there, was, there was a JJ that didn't join the core and who knows what he would have gone on to do, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't have the mind that I do. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a chicken and egg with it. Like I definitely had some of these mindsets of what drew me to the core in the first place, but it wouldn't have been sharpened in the way that it was. You know, the resilience that I'd discovered you know, through training, through Afghanistan, and then very much so through my recovery. Like, those are the things that, you know, resilience, perspective, like, it's everything. And so, you know, I can't put my finger on one thing, which I do better than than, than the civilian world, but it's very much the mindset and the ethos. And that isn't just like a core ethos, it's just that, it's just, I think, actually, if I really had to sort of call it out, it's that sense of purpose, that sense of service that you have, and it's that's it's continually wanting to be part of something bigger than yourself, and that's kind of what gets me out of bed. That's what gets me there on time. That's what gets me there looking sharp. Whatever it might be.
0: Uh, we're on the Nappy Break podcast. We're always highlighting the fact of veterans helping veterans as well, and one of the purposes of this podcast is to having the people we have on, helping the people who are going through transition who've maybe not quite found that purpose yet or haven't quite set their goal or whatever it is and they're they're confused or they're not sure to go forward. JJ, from all the things you've said this morning, I think if anybody sees you now on TV or hears you on radio their mind is going to flick back to some of the things you've said today. And I think they've got a a fantastic picture of what drives you now and what you're doing. So I'm really grateful for you coming on and sharing that experience. Uh, It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, I thank you for sharing the story about your flight to Tokyo, because it was the thing that really kind of just stopped me in my tracks that day. Um, But if you had one final thing for people who were leaving the service, who were coming, you know, they decided they're going to go or they're going to get medically discharged. And they're looking forward, and maybe they're like, "What's going to happen next?" Is there one thing you would kind of say to them to to almost kind of set them on a trajectory, or to to give them a kind of word of that mentoring we talked about earlier? And how would you now mentor a service leaver in in terms of that transition?
1: Yeah. So what I would say, if I try, if I stick myself back to the day that I left service, the day that I was medically discharged from the court was actually the day I flew to Orlando be a reporter on the Invictus Games. And not just a reporter, I was also like an infield presenter. I kind of got myself like an ambassadorial role in the Games. What I'm saying is I didn't really have a one job there. I had about five different things because that was the thing. Like I was leaving the core and it felt like everything was about to change. I was no longer going to be able to pull a uniform on. And that was quite scary. But actually, once the uniform came off and I walked out, nothing had changed. My mindset was still the same. My my phone book, that my my mates' names from the core didn't just delete themselves. Like I still had the same support network. And, um, you know, instead of being able to phone up my boss at Marines and I now had the Royal Marines charity. Um, you know, so my no, nothing really changed. But the only thing that changed is I was now a former Royal Marine rather than a Royal Marine. And the job that I stepped into was uncertain. Um now I will I will completely represent this with the fact that. I, I thankfully my my uh, armed forces compensation had been completed, so I kind of knew what I did and didn't need in terms of you know security. I kind of knew where, uh, that in some ways, I could take a risk with my career, uh, and I knew that I, more than anything, had an amazing wife who i like you said earlier, I'd spoken to and been very clear about you know where I wanted to go and where we were going to go with this, and we were going to have this challenge together. And so, when I went off to Orlando to do my first job, and it was, I say, it was about five different jobs, I realized that I needed to be successful at them. But really, I was massively wet behind the ears. And what I needed to do was learn. And that is by working really damn hard and soaking up as much as you possibly can from those around you, finding the right influential characters, you know, literally turning up and, and being a fly on the wall when you cook. And it was relentless, and I did that for two weeks, uh, and I've done that for five or six years since. You're always learning, you're always trying to improve, but I was told that day one when I joined the Corps, that you'll never rest on your laurels. So I don't know if that necessarily answers your question, but that's certainly what I felt when I left Forces, that everything was about to change, that I found that nothing really changed. But I will. Uh, the last thing I will say is that I think at that point, I had my meaning and my purpose. And I think whatever people need to do, is find that meaning and purpose whether that's the thing that pays your bills or it's the thing you do on the weekend it's volunteering or being part of a community group whatever it is finding that meaning and that purpose that's the reason you get out of bed in the morning and that's the thing in your darkest of moments when you go why the hell am i doing this if you have that answer you have that purpose then you'll just keep going forward and if you keep going forward no matter how dark a situation you're in it will come good and And the last thing I will say is, you know, I'm a pretty positive bloke. The conversation we've had, had highs and lows, but you know, the low points I had be be under no illusion. They were, they were low. And I was in a very, very bad place. I'm not the first person to have ever been there. You're not alone. If you're in a dark place, like there are amazing people, old wingers, buddies, whatever it is. But what I'm saying is just keep going. It comes good
0: in the end. Yeah, that's a fantastic uh, message for anyone who's, who's in that situation, Jutaloo. JJ Chalmers, a uh, privilege to speak to you today and an absolutely fascinating insight. So thank you very much for joining the Naffy Break podcast. Cheers, mate. been an absolute pleasure. What a fantastic guest to get on the Naffy Break podcast. I'm sure you don't need me to pick out the relevant salient points from my conversation with JJ. Uh, I'm sure different things will resonate with different people. But I was absolutely delighted that he was prepared to come onto the podcast and he was very honest and open. There was nothing off limits when we spoke before we came on air and he was willing to share his experience and what he's learnt through his transition journey for the benefit of others. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please follow and share to anybody with a Forces Connection. And I look forward to seeing you in 2022.